The Capital Weekly Podcast is a production of Open California and is sponsored by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. This is a special episode of the Capital Weekly Podcast recorded live at Capital Weekly's Conference on Housing Policy, May 26th, 2021. Hello, and uh, welcome to our keynote address. Our keynote today is Assemblyman David Chu, uh, a Democrat from San Francisco, the 17th District. And he is also, for our purposes, the perfect keynoter because he's chair of the Assembly Housing Committee. Uh, We're delighted to have you here, David. Thank you very much for coming. David's an attorney, Harvard Law School trained, master's from Harvard, undergraduate from Harvard, but then he wised up and came to San Francisco in the mid-90s and uh, worked for the San Francisco District Attorney's Office as a prosecutor. And at the same time, about the same time, was a civil rights attorney for the Committee on Civil Rights, a lawyer's Committee on Civil Rights, which is an amazing duality there. You don't see that in a lot of places. Maybe San Francisco, it's not that unusual. Um, We're delighted to have him. Like I said, David, thanks again, and I'll turn it over to you now. Great. Thank you, John. I uh, appreciate Capital Weekly uh, convening us for this important conversation. And I was asked to give uh, a keynote address of about uh, probably about 10 to 12 minutes and then uh, happy to open it up to questions and, and, and grilling by, uh, by the best John Howard and others. Um, so, uh, so let me just also start by saying my hope is this is the last Zoom conference that we participate in uh, because as everyone knows, so much of the work we do uh, is benefited from face-to-face engagements and uh, and being able to work through really difficult questions. And I want to also just thank all of you who are watching this because I know you've all been stakeholders and participants in, uh, in helping us grapple with a really difficult set of questions. So if I had to title my thoughts today, um, it would simply be, we still have a housing crisis, pure and simple. Um, I've said before on past uh, Capital Weekly conferences that when I was first elected in 2014 to the state legislature, now seven years ago, and I came to Sacramento and I asked, what are we doing about the housing crisis? Initially back then, I was met by a lot of blank stares. Now, having served for six years as the chair of the Assembly Housing Committee, everybody knows we have a crisis. There's a consensus that there is a crisis. There has been a lot of motion. There's been a lot of talk. There has been a a god-awful number of bills. But the fact is, we still have a crisis. We have an absolute crisis. It's not exactly the same crisis as where we were seven years ago. And I want to say there's been a lot of good that has happened, but I think it's fair to say there's been not nearly enough for anyone to feel confident that we're on the brink of solving this crisis. And to contextualize it a little further, you know, crisis that has been decades in the making is going to take years to solve. I feel every year that it's been two steps forward, one or one and a half steps back, and we still have a mile to go in this journey. So I'm going to take a few moments and just sketch out three areas that reflect the crisis from the lowest end of the income spectrum of what we are grappling with around homelessness to the plight that is facing tenants, and then the challenges facing housing production more broadly. And I think it's fair to say in each of these areas, there's good news, there's bad news, and there is a need for much more action. 
So let's talk first about homelessness. Uh, in my city of San Francisco, this topic has stymied six generations of mayors and boards of supervisors. I am constantly reminded of something that my friend, Sacramento Mayor Daryl Steinberg often says, and I quote, the only good thing people hate more about homelessness are solutions to homelessness. Now, the good news around this area is that many cities are striving to do tremendous work. Uh, this is a top priority for many of the larger cities in uh, California, led by their mayors. Uh, it is top of mind in Sacramento. It's been a top priority for our governor. Um, Want to just remember that it was not long ago that Governor Newsom uh, devoted his entire state of the state address just a couple of mere weeks before the pandemic focused on this topic. And I want to thank Governor Newsom uh, for ensuring that during this crisis, we have not seen the explosion of COVID-19 within our homeless population, in large part because with the governor's leadership around Project Room Key and Home Key, moving thousands of folks into housing in record time, uh, streamlining that work, uh, we were able to avoid that. I also want to give credit to our state's housing first policy. The fact is, over the years, we had committed to saying that if we're going to turn around someone's life, rather than first requiring them to sober up or get a job, we need to just put roofs over people's heads. And I also want to just thank our policymakers in Sacramento for the level of investment that we have been committing to in this area. The governor recently proposed a record $12 billion be spent over the next couple of years, really doubling down on home key and room key, um, doubling down on this idea that we can end family homelessness in the next few years. Um, and, uh, and obviously the governor has a partner in the legislature, both the Senate and the assembly have proposed a $20 billion expenditure in the coming years that we really focus on street homelessness, echoing the calls of mayors and leaders around the state. Now, that's the good news. The challenging news, the bad news is despite all of this effort, everyone knows the most recent count has shown our homeless numbers continue to increase. Over 160,000 folks who are homeless in the state of California. Um, there is hardly a community or neighborhood in the state that does not have unhoused neighbors and potentially tens of thousands of folks more if we don't figure out how to keep folks from losing their homes. And the public knows that we are failing here. There was a recent poll done by Build Affordable Faster California uh, that literally found that 98% of Californians say that homelessness is a serious problem. I've never seen numbers like this. So what do we need to do? What are the next steps? Um, just this past week uh, in the assembly, we put out a package of eight bills as part of a homelessness package of bills that are still moving through the process uh, that we need at this moment. Uh, and let me highlight two in particular. Uh, one is about this idea that short-term funding, one-time funding is great, but we need an ongoing permanent source of funding so that cities and counties and continuums of care can plan more than one year at a time, know that they're going to have the resources to provide ongoing services. This is why uh, I have been co-authoring Luce Rivas's AB 71, which would create a permanent source of funding by taxing a small group of corporations that have managed to hide corporate profits overseas. It's supported, I think, at last count by 400 organizations. It is on the assembly floor as we speak. The second concept I want to just put out there is 
as we are spending billions of dollars when it comes to homelessness, the question that we are all being asked as policymakers and the public asks is, how do we ensure accountability at all levels to make sure that money is being well spent and it's going to where it needs to be? How do we ensure that we are being effective with public resources? And then, then the fact is, at this moment, no one has uh, clear responsibility on, on this, neither cities nor counties nor the myriad of state agencies that are involved. We know we need to have a much more coordinated response with clear roles and responsibilities. I'll just note that in recent years, there have been advocates for our homeless neighbors who have sued cities around the state who haven't done enough, particularly in light of a Ninth Circuit ruling, uh, the Boise case that said uh, that you can't just roust homeless folks off the street if a city doesn't have a housing solution for them. The Ninth Circuit literally said it's a violation of the Eighth Amendment's protections against cruel and unusual punishment. This is why Judge David Carter, first in Orange County, now in Los Angeles, has ordered cities to be more accountable to addressing homelessness. This is why I've authored a bill, AB 816, that says quite simply to local governments and state agencies, come up with a plan to meaningfully address homelessness and stick to that plan. And if agencies and local cities and counties don't follow through on those plans, we need to have accountability. And I've proposed through our bill, the creation of a homelessness inspector general position uh, to use the courts to ensure that that actually happens. So those are some thoughts when it comes to homelessness. Now let's go and talk about tenants. Um, you know, we know that if we were to spend all that we are hoping to invest in these areas, I think we all believe that we can actually house folks who are currently homeless. But we also know that it's not going to matter if more folks fall into homelessness who are currently tenants. So let me just give a couple of statistics. In LA alone, at this moment, they have done a heroic job of providing permanent supportive housing for 133 homeless folks a day. That is truly impressive. But in LA, as has been off-quoted, there are 150 residents who become homeless each day. And that statistic is not only stunning, it's actually, uh, LA is probably doing very well compared to other cities. So in Oakland, for every one person who gets housed, two people will become homeless. In my city of San Francisco, despite the fact that we have been spending billions of dollars for every one person who becomes, uh, who is housed, three people become homeless. So this really points to the fact that we've got to keep folks housed who currently have a roof over their heads. And for years, conversations about tenant protections has been incredibly difficult in the legislature. Now, the good news is we have made some recent progress on that. So just going back right before COVID-19, 2019, the height of rent prices, we rebalanced that equation a bit when we passed AB 1482, which said that tenants shouldn't be evicted for no reason, and also said that tenants shouldn't be rent gouged. Uh, shouldn't see increases of 25% or 50% in their rents. Now, we were proud for about three months that that bill would help stabilize the plight of certain renters, but then COVID came literally a couple months after that bill went into effect. And we all know that when the pandemic hit and the recession hit, the state told everyone, you got to shelter in place. You can't necessarily go to work, which caused 
a, a, you know, literally over a million folks to lose their jobs and created a new crisis of the potential of an eviction tsunami due to folks not having the money to pay the rent. Now, further good news is our state really rallied over the past year to stave off what could have been or could be an eviction crisis. The first props go to our court system, the Judicial Council, for an eviction moratorium during the first six months of the pandemic. And then our legislature enacted our AB 3088 bill last September to further protect tenants and ensure that tenants who are experiencing COVID economic hardship would not be evicted. And then this past January, uh, the legislature, the governor, the federal government, um, with the help of the federal government, we moved SB 91 to essentially say that $2.6 billion of federal rental assistance would go out to struggling tenants and landlords. Um, and we've gotten even better news that there is another pot of $2.6 billion of rental assistance to help pay off rental debt um, and unpaid utilities. So that's the good news. Now, the challenging news is at this very moment, only a small fraction of folks who are eligible have actually applied and gotten paid. So only 500 million of the 4.6 billion has been uh, essentially called for. And we have, we've known of many challenges in propping up new state and local programs, the complications around documentation requirements, the challenges around public education and awareness, language access challenges, and frankly, some mistrust by tenants and landlords have led us to this particular challenge in May. And we also know as described by a report that was released this week that despite all of these protections in place, there are still folks who are getting evicted and facing threats of eviction. And then you add to that the fact that the current eviction protections are slated to run out in one month at the end of June 30th. So here we are for the fourth time as the moratorium or the protections we have are set to expire with the state still down 40% of the jobs that we had at the beginning of the pandemic, how are these folks gonna pay the rent? And if they can't pay the rent, where are they gonna go? So I just wanna take a moment to remind us that we are not out of the woods yet. Um, it would be tragic to get this far and then suddenly fail at keeping hundreds of thousands of folks off the streets. If it were up to me and I could wave the magic wand, we should extend the eviction protections. We need to make sure that all $5.2 billion get into the hands of struggling tenants and landlords. And we need to make sure that folks aren't evicted that we otherwise could have helped. Now, let me just move to uh, the third and final topic around production. You know, with all of these existential crises literally at and on our doorsteps, it's hard sometimes to remember that the systemic reason we're in this mess, the overarching reason we're in this mess, is the fact that we just have not produced enough housing. Now, I'm not going to blame the lack of production for all of our woes. We have widening income inequality. We have substance abuse and mental health challenges on our streets. There are many reasons why we have the homeless crisis and the eviction crisis we're talking about. But I think it's also important to remember that for all of our hand-wringing, we are orders of magnitudes away from the production levels that we need. I'll just remind people, a few years ago, we had honest-to-goodness debates about how many million of units of housing we are short, right? Um, 3.5 million units that we were supposed to build over the next, over, over a seven or eight year time period. And we had discussions, well, is it three and a half million or two and a half million? You know, today those debates feel quite quaint because if I, I would, 
I would be happy to take a path to build a million units in the coming year. And if it turns out that we haven't built enough, we could build more. But the fact is we are nowhere near even building at that level. When we're building less than, you know, moving forward with less than 100,000 new units a year, half of what it takes for us to just keep up, let alone address this crisis, we got a lot of work to do. Now, the good news we have made progress in recent years to turn this tide. You know, we rehauled our arena and housing element process so that cities at this moment are planning for the level of housing that we really need, are starting to think about how do we direct growth toward places near jobs, near transit, near high opportunities. They're finally, because of laws that have passed in recent years, real teeth to a failure of compliance, um, including potentially being in the crosshairs of our attorney general. I want to give a lot of credit to legislative leadership uh, that made ADUs buy right everywhere. This is a concept 10 years ago that would have been completely unthinkable. It used to be a third rail issue. Um, and then also want to just thank um, state leadership for stepping up around affordable housing funding so that now we're finally starting to catch up to where we were before redevelopment was dissolved. Of course, now I just talked about good news. Let's talk about bad news, the challenges. I would suggest that we still do not have the urgency at the local level to address this. I think the urgency exists at the state level, but it's been just kind of classic when local jurisdictions are opposing bills that many of my colleagues are trying to move to streamline the housing crisis. And they say, yes, we have a housing crisis, but let's not build in my neighborhood, in my city. And we know that while cities don't build housing, with a lot of overregulation at the local level, with NIMBY attitudes, um, there are certainly many barriers that are put up by local jurisdictions to actually having things built. And this is why it was important that a few years ago, our legislature, HCD, implemented policies to ensure that every city needs to strive to be, quote, pro-housing, rather than allow some cities to pass those burdens to others. This is why I've authored AB 215 to ensure that cities with the worst housing records in the coming years adopt pro-housing policies and really engage in this conversation. So it's not just a once every eight year conversation, but it's an ongoing conversations into the coming years. Now, a second challenge that we continue to face is the fact that we've really been stymied when it comes to having a conversation of how do we ensure that we streamline housing, that we are managing skyrocketing costs on that front, where it's costing six, seven, nine hundred thousand dollars a door, um, and doing this as we also are ensuring fair wages for folks who are building the housing. And I'm going to just say it, um, the challenging discussions between our friends in the affordable housing world and the market rate uh, builder world, as well as our friends and allies in the building trades on these issues, it has been difficult to move forward significant housing production reform. I believe that there's a deal to be had that will work for everyone. And I want to encourage that conversation. I've often joked that we need to just get folks into a room and lock the door until it happens. We need to get there. Um, the third challenge I just want to highlight around production is just one around equity. Um, and it's a conversation that I don't think has been had in the housing world to the extent to which we've been having these equity conversations in a post-George Floyd world in when it comes to our criminal justice system or a social service system or education. The fact is, if you look at current housing policy, the impact of tax policies, the challenges of access to capital, single family zoning based on histories of exclusionary policies, residential segregation. It is not a surprise 
that you see just enormous disparities between black and brown residents and others when it comes to who owns a home, who gets evicted, who becomes homeless. This literally is the civil rights issue of our day, but it hasn't been the, the commitment that we've seen in other policy areas to address the equity issues when it comes to housing really just hasn't been there. And that's something I wanna challenge um, all of you, all of us who are working in this area to, to think hard about. Let me just end by thanking everyone, um, all the stakeholders, as well as the press for calling us out on these issues, uh, you know, but for, <clears throat> but for the leadership of Governor Newsom, our speaker, our pro tem, amazing legislative leaders, I don't think we would have been able to get as far as we've gotten today working alongside so many advocates who I know are listening and, and part of this. But let me just conclude by reminding us that we still have a housing crisis. This is not a time to rest on our laurels. We need to make sure that everyone who's participating in this conversation agrees to keep working at this with the level of urgency that the crisis demands until someday, hopefully soon, every Californian has a roof over their heads, has a place that their family can call home. That's what we need to strive to. Thanks. John, back to you. Great. David, thank you very much. Um, I had a couple questions come in from viewers, and I had one question when you mentioned housing, uh, building housing and construction. The issue came up during the last, um, during the last panel discussion on what are Washington and Oregon doing right? They seem to have a better handle on getting housing built more quickly than we can in California. Uh, what could we do in California? How can we learn from Oregon and Washington and maybe improve our housing stock? So, you know, as a Californian, as a Californian policymaker, we are all really proud of how many ways in which California leads. And unfortunately, this area of housing is one where we're really behind. Uh, there are other cities and jurisdictions that are in front of us, including our neighbors uh, to our Northwest. Um, Senator Weiner and I uh, have in recent months started participating in uh, regular conversations with our literal counterparts uh, who are the legislators legislative chairs of the uh, housing committees in the states of Washington and Oregon and Hawaii. And we're sharing a lot of um, ideas on how, how to do this. Uh, and the fact of the matter is, I think on, on some of these questions, particularly around housing production, they're just farther ahead. So let's take the single family zoning conversation. Uh, uh, you know, in, in, if you go to, to Oregon, they are farther than we are in saying that the history of exclusionary policies that have uh, have have inked single-family zoning policies in California should be overdone. It's not scary to think about neighborhoods that may be zoned for fourplexes. Uh, there's actually a famous article that has been floating around about a neighborhood in Oregon where uh, 25, 30 years ago, it was zoned for fourplexes. And if you look at what that neighborhood, the form and character of that neighborhood, it looks an awful lot like um, the suburban communities that are the single-family zoned communities that uh, that our, some of our cities are protecting so much to keep. And, uh, and I think there's a lot for us to learn uh, from our neighbors to, to our Northwest. And part of what we're doing right now is literally just sharing best practices and best ideas with the idea of trying to move forward some of the things that they're doing. Uh, jumping around a little bit, one question that came in was uh, on rent control. Uh, do you think rent regulations have helped or hindered the availability of affordable housing over time? So, you know, the way I typically answer the question is if we had a perfect 
perfect market system where we built enough housing to meet the demand, we wouldn't need rent control, rent regulation. But the fact of the matter is we don't. And the fact of the matter is at this moment, without the protections that we have in place with rent control and other forms of rent regulation, we could literally see the wholesale displacement of low-income folks in California, of communities of diversity in California. That would certainly be the case in my city. And so, um, it's the best set of protections we have at this moment to ensure some level of economic and racial diversity in high cost areas in California. Now, clearly the long-term solution is we've got to build more housing at all levels of affordability to get us out of this crisis. But in the meantime, if we don't have these protections, um, I think we would see an eviction tsunami. Uh, We would see astronomical homelessness levels as if they're not already at crisis uh, levels. Um, so it's it's sort of the, the best set of protections we have given the imperfect world that we live in. But um, you know, long-term, we've got to build more housing. And at the same time, I'd say we've, we've got to ensure strong protections for tenants so that folks aren't being pushed out onto the streets right now, which would have catastrophic consequences for homelessness and potentially uh, pandemic and other public health crises. Uh, one last question. We've got a couple of minutes left. Uh, are you seeing in San Francisco uh, or elsewhere from your perch on the housing committee, families getting together and buying housing as a unit, uh, three or four families getting together, perhaps one family on their own can't come up with the financing or meet the financial requirements, but three or four getting together can pool resources and do it. Is that, uh, is that happening? Is that going on right now from your experience? So I haven't anecdotally seen individual families teaming up with other individual families, but what I have seen are nonprofit models where um, trying to save the housing for low-income residents and families in smaller size buildings. So let's say five to 10 unit buildings where a developer might otherwise be incented to uh, to maybe f- uh, flip that building, demolish the building, build new condos. What we're seeing are nonprofit models through uh, uh, right of first refusal programs, through community land trusts that are working with lower income families to help them make a down payment on uh, the buildings that they live in. Um, it's, it's basically a new version of a preservation strategy to help families that otherwise would be struggling to live there to give them a chance to actually own the buildings that they live in. So um, it's not exactly three or four families coming together to say, hey, can we do this? But it's them working in partnership with cities and nonprofits and policies that allow for that type of financing. And I think it's a very interesting model uh, that I have supported for many years that that I think will probably get more attention in the coming years. Great. David, thank you very much. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Um, And we thank the viewers, too, for participating. And we will see you next time around. Take care. Sounds good. Thank you. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot. And we'll see you next week. The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations.